This is episode 274 of the Beyond the Food Show. And today we're going to talk on apologetic eating with my friend, Alyssa Rumsey. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Going Beyond the Food Show. I'm Stephanie Dodier, clinical nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor, creator of the Going to Beyond the Food Method. And after a 25-year dieting career that started at the age of 12, I decided to say hell no to diet culture and hell yes to living my life to the fullest in my now body. And I made it my mission to help smart, successful women like you live confidently, unconditionally right now. Ready, sister? Let's do this. Hey, if you're new to the Going Beyond the Food Show, our podcast roadmap has been designed with you in mind. With over 250 episodes available to listen, it can feel overwhelming to know which episode to prioritize for you. The podcast guide answers the top five questions women have when they enter our world of going beyond the food to unlearn diet culture. To get your free copy of our podcast roadmap guide, head over to stephaniedozier.com forward slash roadmap or use the hyperlink in the show notes. I'll see you on the other side. Welcome in, my sisters. I'm so happy to have you here today. I'm excited to share this interview. And yeah, we have an interview on the podcast. It's been a while since we had one of those and wanted to take this opportunity before we dive in to today's interview to share with you a little bit of an update on the podcast. So you will see more interviews coming up for the next months. I don't know exactly how long this is going to be taking place with, but I want to share with you some of the people that influence my life, either personally or professionally, and people that I think would bring positive into your life and that would help you in your life. So I'm carefully choosing the people for those interviews. And today, it's one of the best person to start this interview series with. It's a friend, a colleague. Her name is Alyssa Rumsey. She's a registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. And I discovered her actually a few years ago, and she'll share a little bit of that in the interview, how her life on the wild world of the internet began. But for me, I was scrolling through Instagram years ago, can't remember, three years probably ago, and um, I saw this hashtag trending called women's eating food. And I clicked the hashtag and it was like, all these women of all shapes and size eating food unapologetically. And I dug into it and I followed the hashtag and then I discovered Alyssa. And then since then, um, we've been internet buddies and she's been on the podcast twice and she's a teacher inside, a guest expert teacher inside of our uh, non-diet mentorship for professionals. She teaches a class, Thin Privilege in Practice. It's obviously designed for professional, but it, the context of this class is about how to approach patients or client as a thin person in a intuitive eating practice. And now she's written a book. She's written a book about her story um, and also the world of unapologetic eating. So I'm honored to have her here today to share this conversation with you. 
In the interview, we're going to talk about the oppressive nature of dieting, how and why eating is a political move. And I think her approach about how food can be an entry point to explore and transform our life is such a good blend to what we do here on the podcast. And we're going to close this podcast with how we can move from unapologetic eating to unapologetic living. This is gold, I'm telling you. So a quick note before we get into the interview, there has been a delay in publishing Alyssa's book. So you will hear us talk about in the interview that the book is releasing today, being February the 11th, unfortunately, due to a massive snowstorm that it, New York and the East Coast a week ago, her book launch has been delayed till February the 16th. However, you can still go and order your book. Um, and we have a link where you can go and order it, reserve it, pay for it, and it's going to get delivered right to your door on the 16th. So with that in mind, let's go into this beautiful conversation between me and Alyssa. Hi, Alyssa. Hey, Stephanie. I am very excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. The book is phenomenal on apologetic eating. And I want to get right into it with the story you shared during the intro, your pub sub sandwich. Can you tell the listener a little bit about this and how it actually came out to be a book about this? Yeah, sure. Oh my gosh, that introduction. I must have rewritten that so many times. Did you? <laughs> oh my gosh, I rewrote it. Because I knew I wanted to tell this story in the introduction. But you know, and this is we'll probably get into this, but I was following what I thought I should do in an introduction rather than, <laughs> you know, what was like sitting right and felt right to me. So um, yeah, so I start the the book, the introduction with this story that occurred just a couple of years ago. And I was in Florida um, with my partner visiting my parents. And my partner's family is from or lives in Florida. He went to college there. And he was like, and I've been going there for the in the winters to visit in the past, but he was like, oh my gosh, you've never had a pub sub, which if any of your listeners live anywhere kind of in the south part of the US, I think is where Publix, this grocery store chain, is located. Um, so it's a sub kind of sandwich. Uh but from this store called Publix. So we get this pub sub and I'm eating it. I'm like on the pool deck in my bikini and unbeknownst to me, he's taking photos and he showed them to me afterwards. And um, this sounds creepier than it, than it actually was. He often does this just like, you know, he takes photos of everything, especially food related. So he showed them to me after and he's like, do you mind if I post this? And I looked at it and so the pub subs, they're massive. So I'm like, my mouth is literally like wide open. My like forehead's all wrinkled up. I'm like hunched over in my bikini and um, I have food on my face. And I was like, yeah, go for it, you know, and didn't really think too much of it, to be honest. And I was like, you know what? I actually want to post that as well. And looking at the photo, it reminded me I'd had a conversation um, at that point, like a few weeks prior to that with a client of mine who watched uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat on Netflix. Uh, Samin, I always forget how to pronounce her last name. But Samin was, you know, came out with this next Netflix show. And my client had said to me, oh my gosh, it's amazing to see 
you know, a woman, a woman of color, a woman who's not, you know, quote, traditionally thought of as beautiful by our society standards, who's not in a really small body, eating food, enjoying food, and not making any comments about, you know, why she's eating a certain thing or how she has to work it off later or just, just eating it and enjoying it. And so I post this picture of me with the pub sub and I write that in the caption, kind of just this story about my client and my conversation. And I said something to the effect of like, why don't we see more images of women like actually eating food and enjoying it without explaining or apologizing for it or like justifying why they're eating what they're eating. And so I post this image, um, again, didn't really think too much of it and it blew up. Like it got so like almost immediately went to like the top of, in terms of my like Instagram analytics with like the number of like comments and likes. And I got so many direct messages from people and, you know, from women just saying how like quote brave this was of me and how like, you know, they could never in a million years post a photo like that of themselves. And, you know, that, and I write about this in the book about how that moment was, really eye-opening for me just in terms of, you know, realizing that like, wait, why is this, you know, thought of as brave that I'm like posting a photo of me eating? And then um, uh, another colleague of ours, uh, Linda, commented and said something to the effect of like, oh, we should start like a hashtag women eating food. And I clicked on this hashtag and this is Instagram just a few years ago. And there were only three photos and none of them, I don't think at the time had a woman actually eating food. Only three photos using that tag. Meanwhile, like women eating banana had like thousands of images using that tag. So, so yeah, so that really kind of kicked off this personal reflection and also professional reflection of, you know, the response to it. Like, why was this thought of as so revolutionary and why were so many women um, so you know, found this so like unbelievable and thought that they could never do it. And then also really thinking about, um, you know, as kind of the hashtag women eating food started to take off a little bit, then hearing from colleagues of mine who were in larger bodies or in fat bodies, you know, who were also posting, they share the same message and they were getting this like awful, like hate messages, right? Like, meanwhile, I was getting praised for this and I'm, I'm in a thin body. Um, so yeah, so kind of that dichotomy was, was really horrific, but also really got me, you know, that's, you know, I know you and I have talked about thin privilege Mm -hmm. in the past and it got me really reflecting a lot on that. Yeah. Because you teach a class in, in my mentorship program about, uh, an intuitive eating practitioner in a thin body and how that can be different from a person like me in a large body and how we need different points of reflection as practitioner. Yeah. So that what ends up being a book today. Yeah. Could you say? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that really did start this transformation because up until that point, you know, I am thin, I am white, I am able-bodied, I'm cisgender, um, heterosexual. So, you know, I basically all of the privileges um, with the exception of not being a man. But point, you didn't know you had like, just like all of us, we didn't know we had those privileges two years ago. That wasn't even in our lexicon, the word privilege. No, not at all. Not at all. So this photo was a big turning point for me because up until that point, you know, living with all of these privileges and I had never thought about the fact that all of the photos, the advertisements, the movies, the people on TV, like everything, they all look like me. And I was mainly 
from like the time I've been, I was born, I've mainly seen images of people who look like me. And, you know, now kind of like the implicit message that these images send to women were now like staring me in the face. Like I had never questioned them because they had never, you know, you know, they did harm me. I've struggled a lot with body image in my past, but not to the extent that it does for people um, who don't have the the body privileges that that I have. So yeah, it was all of a sudden like really evident, like, oh wait, you know, the reaction I'm getting is very different than someone else who might post a photo like this. And it had started to unpack the political aspect of eating. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, when I first got into this work, I've been a dietitian for a dozen years at this point. um, And I was trained in our weight centric healthcare system. So, um, you know, trained under kind of the traditional like weight loss for health paradigm that, you know, you and I have talked about in the past. Yeah. But just for people listening, because we don't, we have a mixture of professional and regular women listening. Mm -hmm. This is still the model that dietitians are being trained in. And I know that's the model that nutritionists are being trained in in Canada as well. Like that hasn't changed. Yep. Yep. It's, we're starting to see slow inroads, but yes, the majority of dietitians and really all healthcare professionals, doctors, you know, chiropractors, you know, everybody, physical therapists, uh, therapists, they're all trained in this system where kind of the weight equating it to health. So the aha moment that you had with this pub sub sandwich and the woman heats movement is something that is intentional, like you have as a practitioner to have this moment, because it's not being taught to you in your education, right? Exactly. And it was interesting because at the point when I posted this a couple of years ago, I had already made the shift from what we consider like weight centric to weight inclusive. And I had, you know, done my intuitive eating certification and I'd started practicing with clients from this weight inclusive place. But, you know, even throughout all of that, I hadn't learned anything about kind of the the social and political and like power and systemic forces at play with all of this. Um, and so, yeah, so this photo was really the, the start and it continues to be, you know, I feel like I was updating my book, like all the way to the <laughs> yes. public, like when it went to pram, like, wait, 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 I learned a new thing. I got to change this. Um, so yeah, just continuing to really learn these systems and structures that were put into place hundreds of years ago, um, to try to control people and still to this day affect how we eat and how we feel about our bodies and our relationship with food and our bodies. It's funny because as I was like going through the book, I'm like, she's having the exact same journey as me, like started in a traditional model, came across intuitive eating, did the intuitive eating piece, and then the political and the social justice aspect come in and you're like, well, I thought it was about this, but here's the other layer. And let me peel this one. Oh my God, there's another one there. Like, oh my gosh. Yes. It's like peeling layers of an onion until you get to the core of it. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the oppressive nature of dieting. If you can mm-hmm. teach a little bit about that and yeah. why it's called un- unapologetic eating your book, because I think it's the reason for the book title. So, yeah, I mean, I think when we, you know, I loved your, metaphor of like peeling down the layers of the onion, because that's really what it is. And I think at the core, it's really goes back to, um, you know, all these different interlacing systems of oppression. So, 
you know, a cultural or a social focus on body size and appearance, which then this focus makes people diet to try to achieve this cultural like ideal of a body. What does this do, right? This teaches us to distrust our bodies, which then means we distrust ourselves. We think that we can't control ourselves. We think we can't be trusted. We are, you know, putting aside like our wants and needs for this kind of social ideal that we're told like, oh, this is what makes you a good person, a worthy person, a valuable person, an attractive person, a healthy person even. Um, So we're really taught to ignore and, you know, disconnect from our own body signals. And, you know, this is how oppression works, right? Like racism, sexism, um, ableism, like it works by disconnecting people from their bodies and pushing them to the outer skirts of society. And so, you know, this food and body piece really comes into play because like I said, like when we distrust our bodies, we end up distrusting ourselves. And then from like a power, a systemic power perspective, groups of people who don't trust themselves are easier to control. Yeah, they're not in their power. They're disconnected with their power, the power being in their body, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is, you know, such a great, and I quote her at least once, if not more in the book, uh, Sabrina Strings, who wrote Fearing the Black Body. And really, this was my first uh, learning about how, you know, we call it diet culture, right? We call it diet culture, this like system of ideals, like social ideals that say like a thin body is what you need to be happy, to be healthy, to be valuable, et cetera. Um, But really like what's underneath diet culture, and this is kind of, again, getting to that core is racism is, you know, and that's at the core of like fat phobia too, right? Is like racism, colonialism, sexism, like all of these things actually came first And then that is what made us fat phobic and made us fearing this fat body uh, has its roots in racism, colonialism, sexism. Mm -hmm. Where do you see the intersection with feminism? Oh, such a great question. So yeah, so this is also something funny because a couple of years ago, if you asked me like, oh, are you feminist? Like, first of all, I probably wouldn't have been able to define like what- Same thing for me, like what? Feminism? Yeah. Or I was like, well, like, yeah, I believe like men and women should be equal. Well, I would have said to you, it's done. Like we have all the rights we need to have. Like, what are you talking about? That was the 70s. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, I think And I I do in the book go into a little bit like intersectional feminism as opposed to like white woman feminism, which is what, um, you know, the first wave of feminism was basically white feminism. It granted more rights to white women, but not to women of color. And so I think, you know, intersectional feminism looks through this lens of, you know, basically how there's this body hierarchy in our society where white men are at the top, white, able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual men are at the top, and um, basically like black, transgender women are at the bottom, right? And so intersectional feminism looks to, you know, we have all these different intersecting identities. And if you, you know, like I said before, like I'm not a man, so I have like one kind of level of oppression, but everything else I'm not oppressed for any of my other identities. Um, But someone who is a black disabled woman, she's a woman, she's black and she's disabled. So like the more kind of 
intersecting identities, marginalized identities you have, the more you're you're oppressed in our society. And so I think that, you know, the more I've learned about intersectional feminism, and just again, that really from my understanding has this belief that, you know, all humans are worthy and valuable as they are, as they're born. Um, I love how Sonia Renee Taylor calls it the the radical self-love of just like we're born with this, you know, this is inherent. Um, you know, rather than, and she also, I'm not sure if you listened to Sonia's podcast episode with Brene Brown. Not yet. Uh, it's amazing. And she talks about the body hierarchy as a ladder. And it's funny because Brene at first is like kind of confused about what she means. Like, oh, we have to build a new ladder. And Sonia's like, no, we have to throw this ladder, this body hierarchy away altogether. Um, because basically when you talk about, when you mentioned that power, like we're not in our power, we're taught power in our society is taught as like, oh, you have to get above someone else. You have to climb up this ladder of body hierarchy, right? So you're trying to get closer to whiteness, closer to thinness and to this, what's kind of considered quote normal. Um, And Sonia talks about like, no, we have to get off the ladder entirely. And I think that's really how this relates to me, to the work that that I do um, is like, yeah, we have to stop dieting, but really what does that mean? It means we're getting off this ladder of this body hierarchy ladder. I think that's a brilliant analogy because that's what, when we look at women, that's what they try to do. Keep moving up the ladder, getting a body that's closer to the thin ideal. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's how people of color were in the past. They were taught to become closer to white people Mm -hmm. and perhaps not physical characteristic, but the way of living and their lifestyle to try to climb the ladder of power. That's, that's actually very, very smart analogy. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing podcast episode. I was basically every few minutes, I was just like, yes, (laughs) saying it out loud. So, so yeah. One of the part of the book, you, you have a beautiful graphic that shows the evolution of diet culture as we know it today, right? Mm -hmm. In in that intersection of feminism and how women's body were shaped through times in the last 150 years. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to say Naomi Wolf and her book, The Beauty Myth, um, because she, which was originally published, I think in the nineties. And this, in my book, I've put it kind of under this section talking about sexism and how patriarchy plays a role in, you know, how we feel about food in our bodies. And yeah, you know, Naomi says it so beautifully about how, um, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the quote in front of me, but how dieting is one of the most oppressive forces. And the more and more time throughout history, the more each time women gained more and more power, beauty ideals and body ideals were changed again to make them have something else to attain. So it's like, oh, they're getting more power. We need to give them something else to distract. She calls it distraction. And, you know, dieting as really a distraction because, and I talk a lot about this in the book too, of yeah, and this is something I see and I'm guessing you do too with the, the women I work with is that you know, they come to me and they're like, they're spending so much time, whether it's dieting or just worrying about food or thinking about food or thinking about their body. And it just think of what we can do if we didn't have that time, if we weren't using that time for, for dieting. And so, yeah, so basically the, the graphic in the book starts with like around the 1900s. And at that time, like corsets were still in style and it was like small waist and curves and then with the first wave of, of white feminism in the 
20s. You had like the flapper, which like women like taped their breasts and like it was skinny and curveless. And they're trying to, again, we think about it, like move further away from their femininity. And then after that first wave of feminism, the backlash, and then the 40s was like the fuller, like hourglass figure. Um, Like I always think of like Marilyn Monroe-esque, like that type of figure. And then the 60s and 70s was kind of that second wave of feminism. And so we moved back to sort of the thinner, more androgynous body type. And then in the 80s, so it basically changed. It was really amazing, like researching this. Basically every decade, and I didn't go into all the details in the, the book, but basically every decade, the body, the quote, ideal body shape changed. So just think like every decade, like mm-hmm. if not, you know, sooner you're having to like shift like, oh, wait, now this is what's considered attractive or this is what's ideal. I need to try to do this. It's like changing the ladder all the time. Yes. Yes. Right. Because yep. if you hope to achieve the top of the ladder, no, 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 we're changing the ladder. So you're going to start again. Start again. Yes. Yes, exactly. And it just keeps us distracted yeah. and keeps us spending all this time trying to to go after these things, you know, and then really in the last, the last couple decades, it hasn't changed too much. Like the eighties was like, you know, Jane Fonda and Jazzercise and more of like the fit and toned the nineties. You had some of that, like Kate Moss esque, like waifish, uh, like skinny androgynous again, but really in the cu- last couple of decades, it's now, um, and especially with the advent of Facetune and Photoshop and Botox and fillers and all of this stuff and plastic surgery, um, it's still thin, but now it's with, you know, like a big butt and like, but skinny thighs, which is not, that's not how bodies work. If you have a big butt, you are, <laughs> you don't have likely, a thigh gap. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to have a thigh gap. Um, and like big boobs and like really smooth skin and, um, you know, it's like the Instagram aesthetic, right? Like all the women on Instagram look the same, um, which is, you know, just like mind boggling. Um, but you know, it's really been that, but growing more and more unattainable. Like it's like, okay, you have to be thin and you have to be strong and you have to have a big butt and you have to have boobs and you have to have perfect skin. It like keeps getting more and more. And from a, a standpoint of food, now we're shifting to healthism, right? The obsession about health instead of just calorie counting. Like we're just, mm-hmm. we're shifting to just a different notion because now we've figured out the calorie counting. That doesn't work. So now we're shifting to a whole new paradigm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, Christy Harrison calls us the wellness diet of you know, we had, you know, and I talk about this too, like the diet trends through the last hundred years and, you know, it was calories and it was fat and carbs. And now we've been stuck on carbs being the bad guy for, you know, decades. And, um, but as people have kind of like, quote unquote, like woken up a little bit, it's like, oh yeah, like diets, they don't want the diets of like the seventies and eighties, like of their parents' generation. But yeah, so now it's been repackaged and is now marketed under what Christy terms like the wellness diet, which to your point is healthism, like is this very like perfectionistic, very privileged, like this is what you have to do to be be healthy. And it's your duty. Yes. Like I know when I work with women and I, we try to help them see that it's not their duty. Yeah. To be healthy, like like this is not an objective of life. It's never meant to be. It's very hard to even conceptualize because we're born almost in this era over the last 30 years where it's been like our marching order. We have to do everything we can to be as healthy as we can. 
Yes. And if you're not trying to be healthy, then like something is wrong with you. Or you're a bad person. Wrong. You're a bad person. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this belief that like puts health on a pedestal and this is, this I think is, you know, ableism, which is something I'm now learning more about, but it situates like, not only is it something like, okay, you have to achieve health to be like a good and worthy and valuable person, but also it situates the, you know, health at the level of the individual as like, you know, to be health. And this is where like the food piece comes in. Like everyone's like, oh yeah, health. I have to like eat healthy and exercise. And it completely ignores the, like all the other social factors that Mm. make up the majority of, of health and health outcomes and affect health outcomes the most. So it really takes these like modifiable factors at, at the individual level, which yes, do have an impact on health, but it like completely puts that as like, okay, here's what you have to do. And then takes all of the, you know, that away from like basically the political and the government of these like social factors. You did a post on that recently, didn't you? Yes, I did. I don't I don't expect you to know all the stats off the top of your head like this, but do you mind walking us through those other social determinants of health? Sure, sure. So so yeah, so basically the post and we'll credit my intern Autumn who made this beautiful graphic. Oh, it looked um, beautiful. <laughs> showing kind of as a circle, like a pie chart, right? And the different factors that determine our health. And if we say like, okay, that's a hundred percent, the whole circle, the quote unquote modifiable risk factors for health and disease um, that an individual person does have autonomy over only account for about 30, 36% of our health outcomes. And then of that 36%, it's only like, and this is a little bit, you know, gray, but it's probably only about like 10 to 15% are food and exercise specific behaviors. And it was so funny because like the first question, people are like, well, what's that other, you say 36% and the food and exercise is only 15, what's the rest? And it's all these things that honestly, until I started looking into this, I hadn't thought about it too, but it's, you know, drug and alcohol use, seatbelt use, gun use. Wow. (laughs) You know, all of these other things that affect health, but we don't think about health that way because we've just, our society has gotten it into this tiny, tiny focus. That's basically the size of your body is health and absence of disease. So that's 36%, which means that the remaining, you know, 60 plus percent are factors that are not within our control and are really factors that have to do with power and privilege. So things like um, the type of job that you have, um, how much money you make, uh, do you live in a safe neighborhood? How long is your commute? Um, Do you experience microaggressions or macroaggressions? So things like racism, Um, the American Medical Association, I think it was just in November, just came out and said that, you know, publicly said racism is a public health issue, which is amazing. Have they recognized in the States weight stigma as a public health issue? Out of curiosity. (laughs) I don't believe weight stigma has been uh, recognized. Racism has. But yes, weight stigma and fat phobia and weight bias, we know, and this is very evident in the research, has an effect on people's health for a variety of reasons. But part of that, and I think this is where it's similar to, to racism and the different, you know, ableism, homophobia, things like that, is when you experience these things, and especially you're experiencing them on a regular basis, it increases your stress, your body's stress response. And you're kind of always on, you know, the lookout for like this threat to yourself and your safety. And we know that, you know, while acute stress is helpful, 
longer term chronic stress has a whole host of health implications. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then also, of course, from the weight bias perspective, weight stigma, when people experience weight stigma, then they're less likely to go to the doctor, they receive worse care at the doctor. Um, So that definitely affects health as well. So all of these things that are, you know, kind of without or outside of our our locus of control, mm-hmm. especially for people who are in in marginalized bodies. Yeah, that's so interesting, because it puts in perspective, where food should be in our life like that. I don't know. I don't know the stat you said 10%, but that should only be 10% of our life. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, right? It's uh, and I mean, our life and then, you know, I mean, yeah. Life, society, the whole layer of it. Yeah, the whole thing. People just spend, like, and it's so fascinating. I'm sure you get this, too, as nutritionists. It's like when people hear what you do, they're like, oh, what's the best diet for me to be healthy? And I'm just like, okay, if we zoom out for a second, like, <laughs> sure, diet does play, like, what you eat does play somewhat of a role in in your health and how you feel, but not nearly as much as as people, most people think it does. It's so much more than that. But I know for me, that's the reason why I got in the nutrition field in the first place is because diet was my life. Yep. Same. (laughs) Right. I like, I honestly genuinely thought that diets and the way we were eating was the end of it all because it has been my life. Just like you, it had been my whole life has been, had been about food to control my body shape. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that's certainly the messages that we get from, you know, the mass media and government officials and of like, you know, quote unquote, obesity is killing us and, you know, all of these things. And so it's no wonder that so many of us believe that like, oh, well, this is what we have to do to improve health. And we'll wrap this up to the, we'll start wrapping up and we'll see how long it takes us to wrap up. But I think this is where, for me, when I read the title of your book, Mm -hmm. it really represents the stories that I had with food my whole life. Because for me, my story is that I was in a larger body my whole life. I had to control how I was eating in public because people were judging me about what I was eating. And the journey of intuitive eating really took me to that place of unapologetic eating where I could eat normal food in front of people. And that became a move of power. Yeah. Yeah. It became me being in my power to be able to do that because I wasn't able to, in my head, I threw, I I was, but I wasn't felt in my power to be able to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love how you just framed that. Yeah. You know, that's really what the unapologetic eating is means to me is this like, yeah, standing in your power when it comes to food, being able to eat what you want, when you want, how you want, trusting your own body without feeling guilty, feeling ashamed, feeling judged, worrying about what other people are thinking, really just being able to be in the moment and in your body when you're eating and when you're deciding what to eat without feeling like you have to justify it or explain or apologize for what you're eating or not eating. And I believe, and you'll tell me if you see that in your client, but I know for me that need to be apologetic about my eating really drove a lot of my binging. Mm -hmm. Because when I was alone in a space where I felt safe, I just like, I don't know when is the next time I'm going to be able to have chips. So I'm just going to eat the whole bag of chips. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Totally. Yeah. And that gets into, you know, this kind of idea of 
um, the scarcity yes. and like physical scarcity. But also I think what you're speaking to there is this mental scarcity yes. of like, okay, I can't eat this in front of other people. I have to like sneak eat it or eat it only when I'm by myself. Or, you know, I see this a lot with people and I used to do this too of like, okay, I'm never buying these again. Yes. Like I'm not going to keep them in my house. And it's this type of scarcity that actually registers. Like we are taught that like, oh, this is what you quote should do, or this is what you have to do, right? To like be healthy and to like quote be in control. But in reality, our bodies are wired from thousands of years ago where food was scarce and if there was some sort of scarcity with food, your body literally didn't know like when you'd eat again. And so even though that's thousands of years ago, and for those of us who are food secure, you know, food physically is available and around, even if we're restricting, it's there to eat. But our body doesn't know that because it's still wired from thousands of years ago. So this like mental scarcity, these thoughts, like you just said, that triggers the body's starvation response. It literally thinks, oh, Stephanie's going to be starving soon, like starvation's on the horizon. So what does it do? Increases appetite, increases cravings. And then, yeah, that's what leads to this kind of restriction and then like binge cycle because your body's like literally trying to store up yes. thinking that starvation is coming. Yeah. And you cannot be, in my opinion, you cannot be in your power and live in scarcity. No, no, exactly. Yeah. Because if you're Always, if you're in scarcity, you know, with food, but certainly with lots of other things too, but like keeping on the food vein, if there's like some type of restriction and scarcity going on, that is going to compete for your brain's attention and your energy because your brain is going to be like, no, 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 no. We need to devote energy to finding food, to like seeking out food. And so again, that becomes distracting. I often tell clients, and this is something that like shocks people, is that one of the earliest signs of hunger for a lot of people is thinking about food. And most people are like, well, I think about food all the time. And I'm like, well, you are probably restricting and there's probably some scarcity going on because yeah, this, and then once they kind of, you know, start allowing more permission and showing abundance, then they're like, oh yeah, I was able to eat and then not think about food for like many hours. And it's just like a very different way of living. Well, that's the whole methodology behind food habituation, right? Having plant, for those who don't know, food habituation is a process inside of intuitive eating that allows you to stop that pendulum swing that we often talk about. And that's what food habituation is, is about being in a plentiful environment of the food so you can have it if you want it. Yeah. And you walk people through the process of intuitive eating inside of the book, almost step by step, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I am... Um... I mean, the book Intuitive Eating is still one of my my go-tos for people, but I wanted to introduce those concepts for sure, but also, you know, just in the work that I've done with my clients, expand a bit. So I actually have an entire chapter on moving from scarcity to abundance, because I think this is something that people really struggle with. And they often think, well, I'm, I'm not dieting anymore. Like I'm allowing myself to eat everything, but there's still so much scarcity, usually that mental scarcity going on, that's keeping them like in this cycle. And so they feel like really stuck and they're like, well, it's not working. And then they will stop. And this is what happens to a lot of people. So yeah, really talking about how can we identify all of those different, you know, modes of scarcity or, you know, thoughts or thought patterns or inner critic voices or whatever it is that are causing us to have this to our body to respond as if there's scarcity. 
And how can we start to shift that and move towards abundance and to what you mentioned to that habituation of just, you know, we're definitely taught that, I mean, this is what diet culture and the dieting industry tells us that like, oh, if the food's around, like, oh, no, no, I can't, can't control it. You know, I can't control myself, so I can't have it around. And reality, the opposite is, is the case because you aren't having it around. That is why you feel so out of control around it when you are around that food, whether it's you know, chips or ice cream, or for me, it was chocolate, you know, and actually when you do allow yourself to habituate, I always, and I think I use this in the book too. I live in New York city. Um, that's why we're doing this podcast interview for my bathroom because I live in New York city and there's always sirens and I've lived here for, you know, 12 years. And so I don't really hear the sirens anymore. Like I've just habituated to them. And it's the same thing with food. Like once for me, the chocolate, now there's always chocolate in my house. And most days I don't think about it and don't eat it. And then when I want it, it's there and I'm able to. Um, So really it's not an easy process going from scarcity to abundance, but yeah, in the book, I walk through kind of how to, how to do that more specifically. And scarcity is not only the food, but it's also the shooting yourself about how you should eat the food and when you should eat the food. And like, it's more than just quantity. It's all those healthy goal oriented thought about food. And that's where I know for me, that was the last layer in my journey is the whole shooting myself with food based on what I knew of nutrition. Yeah, totally. And it's funny because I feel like I'm not sure if you've experienced this too, but there's still sometimes that I'll catch myself with some of my like old, just like dietitian. And I'm like, wait, Am I actually eating this or not eating it because I want to or don't want to? Or is this still like one of those deeply embedded like rules or something that I was taught? And so it is just this like long process of like pulling these things out and figuring out like, okay, is this me or is this like something that I was taught at some point? Yeah. For me, recently, over the last year, has been cultural food. Mm -hmm. Because I'm from a French background, right, that have a a very intense food background in my culture, right? And forever, I have been not allowing myself to eat cultural food because they were deemed to be, quote, bad or fattening. And even within our culture, our traditional food is by norm called fattening foods. Yeah. It was another layer I had to peel at the end of my intuitive eating journey beyond just health. It was cultural food. And I didn't even realize it was there until I was faced with it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so fascinating. Yeah. So let's wrap this up in talking about the book. I'm assuming people can get it anywhere. It is available at this point from all major online retailers, Amazon for sure, Barnes and Noble, Indie Books or Indie Bound. I mean, if you want to support your local bookstores, that's a great option, bookshop.org. And we'll put the link to it in the show notes as well. I highly recommend it. I think it's another way of presenting intuitive eating and body image from that social justice angle. I think you did a brilliant job at it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having been here, Alyssa. Yeah, this was such a fun conversation. Thanks for having me on. So was it good? I absolutely enjoyed every minute of this interview. Reminder that Alyssa's book is out on February the 16th. 
I know we mentioned the 11th in the interview, but Snowstorm made it so that it's now the 16th, but the book is available on all the platform right now. You can place your order and it would get delivered right to your door on February the 16th. If you did enjoy the show, we would absolutely enjoy reading from you on the podcast review. So whatever app you're in, just find the review section and I look forward to reading your review. And until the next show, my sister, I love you and I'll see you on the next episode of the podcast. Hey you, if you enjoy listening to this show, you have to come and check Conquer and Tribe. It's my monthly coaching program that comes with expert courses that will show you exactly how to take this life-changing work and apply it into your own life. We teach you how to change your mindset, eat intuitively, and master body confidence. That you've decided to stop dieting today or years ago, Conquer and Thrive will help you take this knowledge deeper into real-life practices. It comes with access to me as your coach and my team of experts. Join us by simply going to www.stephaniedodzie.com forward slash join. I can't wait to meet you inside our Conquer and Thrive community. I'll see you on the other side.